non-duality can be recognized first within consciousness, and it often is recognized, I would say it usually is recognized first within consciousness, the sense gate of consciousness, uh, significantly earlier than it is recognized in the other five sense gates. Uh, to recognize the non-dual nature of consciousness is a big uh, step. It's a big shift. It's a big, um, really a collective evolution in, in human consciousness in one way of speaking, but it's a pretty remarkable recognition in the individual for sure. And <clears throat> I would say it's a critical step. Um, I think contemporary ways of talking about non-duality sometimes actually try to skip this step. And I think that can do people a disservice because, um, because the understanding can um, be somewhere between purely conceptual and purely conceptual with some occasional uh, sensory aspect or some occasional intuitive uh, um, touching in without a true realization, without the initial uh, realization that is, I, I would say, pretty critical. Uh, with that initial realization, the realization of the non-dual nature, the primary nature of consciousness being non-dualistic, being pure, being unbound, um, the ability to experience unbound consciousness as such, and the recognition that that experience is always primary to consciousness bound by an object of thought or an object of perception. That's an important recognition. Um, from there, we have an opportunity to move beyond into, into a more subtle and deeper insights. Without that recognition, again, it, it can get conceptual very quickly with doctrine and with talk, talk of non-duality and even no self and all this can become quite conceptual. Um, so I think this initial recognition is pretty important. And I know uh, a lot of people who have established significant realization, deep realization, who would agree with this. Um, also, I think to overlook this tends to lean, as I mentioned, either toward the purely conceptual, or it can start to lean toward a, a kind of uh, nihilistic view. And it's a view. It's not a realization. It's a view. A kind of nihilistic view of nothingness. There's nothing. There's nothing to do. There's no one there to do it. Which um, can be a hobby, or it can even be a... Um, at best, it's a hobby. At worst, it becomes... Um, sort of amplification of a tendency some people have to disassociate and it can become rather um, harmful actually. I think it has for some people. So again, there's a reason we talk about things in a certain way and that we talk about stages of realization um, without hopefully overemphasizing it because this does play out differently for different people and the perceptions of how it plays out and the terms we use do vary, of course, across traditions and across people's experience. Um, with that said, to just wholesale discount that these very significant insights occur um, would be an error in my experience, both in contemporary spirituality of among all these people who for whom this is happening 
and of, and of course, uh, you know, throughout the traditions that we have these rich traditions that do describe these insights very clearly, you know, Buddhism and, and uh, at various aspects of Hinduism and so forth. So, um, so it is important, I think. Uh, the non-dualistic insight in, within consciousness itself is, a, is an interesting one. It's a slippery one in one way because uh, when we start out, as I mentioned frequently, when we start out, we're so conceptually bound. We, we, we're so inter we have the idea of identity, of the idea of self, the idea of me, my life, time, uh, events, we have it completely intertwined with the tendency of consciousness to form a subject object experience. And that's, I think just sort of mechanistic. It happens, starts to happen at a young time in our life, somewhere between one and two years old. And then it, it it's rather subtle at first, perhaps, or rather, um, perhaps intermittent, but it becomes, uh, quite solidified over time. <clears throat> and um, by the time we're in young adulthood, often it, it feels very, very real, very solid, very ongoing. And it becomes hard to question it as such because we can only question it from its own paradigm. So we, we, we're stuck with this, this challenge of trying to solve the problem with the problem. <laughs> and the problem itself can easily accommodate all of our solutions. It's no problem at all to just incorporate that into the, the views that are already dualistic within consciousness. So if I were to say there's one, uh, the, the, the biggest challenge uh, across the board with spirituality, with true transformational spirituality, uh, or tr the, the transformation I talk about, awakening, realization, and so forth, there's one, um, the biggest challenge, all things being equal and all considering all comers, it would be this. It would be that... Um, the, the tendency to conceptualize is strong and the tendency to conceptualize in reference to identity is strong. And it, 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 it takes a big hit with a, with a shift in identity, but it stays, um, uh, binding for quite some time after even, uh, so how do we investigate the nature of consciousness itself? Uh, how do we, how do we get under this? How do we break the spell? Uh, I've talked about this in numerous ways, many, many different ways, of course, and I will continue to. There's a reason I talk about it in different ways. Uh, and that is because if I talk about it one way consistently, it will get co-opted. I see it happening. It's fascinating actually to watch the collective ego and the personal ego is so adaptive. It will, it will, it will take it in, process it and turn it into its own thing. It will turn it into something for itself. And I think this collectively is actually what happens probably with all major religions. I think this is why religions become so far apart, so far from where they actually originated. They originated with someone having a very profound insight to the nature of reality, identity, and so forth. And then we see where they what they turn into. They turn into political organizations. They turn into uh, vehicles for, for abuse. Like all kinds of crazy things happen with institutionalized religions. We all know this. To me, that's actually a, the, the sort of um, broad example and an example over time of how this can happen, that, that the, the co-opting of the, the human self-conscious collective, the, the, the matrix, if you will, 
So it's, it's rather fascinating, but I also see it happening in microcosms. I see it happening in like traditional online dharma, the way people make videos and call it non-duality and these different things and the, the expressions of people who have true insight getting turned into something that's kind of codified and then it becomes reproduced and then um, becomes something much more conceptual. And then that framework uh, becomes a standard by which other people com compare and judge others insight. And, and it just becomes something that's not what it actually was. <laughs> it's fascinating and it can happen to anything I say and I see it happening to things I say as well. So I tend to, uh, while trying to, this is, it's tricky business to talk about this in a lot of ways, but while trying to preserve the truth that these insights are important, that to get under this, this, um, this tendency of the ego to <laughs> kind of reify itself and adapt to everything you take in, um, to get under that and to point to the fact that that is possible for anyone, of course it is. Um, at the same time, I do have to kind of change, or at least I find myself changing approaches as I talk about this, to talk about it in a different way, to get behind your belief that you've already formulated based on what you heard me say before, what you heard someone else say before. So that's the beauty of the, the realization of non-inherency or the realization of no self is that I can endlessly talk about things from different directions because the, the, where it comes from is it has no direction at all. There's no inherent view at all. There's no formulation at all. There's no framework. And so these words can come from that. They just do. Um, and there's a beauty to that and there's a fluidity to it. Uh, but I also understand that that can be frustrating as well because people kind of try to take notes. Well, did you mean this or this? Is it that? Are you comparing this to this and this? And I try to do it nicely, but I usually just say, that's kind of wrong practice. You don't need to solidify the concepts in your mind. You don't need to solidify exactly what Angelo means versus what you know this person means versus what that person means. And what is this term and that term? Um, it's more of opening yourself in the moment to the pointing, opening yourself to the transmission or opening yourself to your own inquiry in the moment and forgetting to the degree you can everything that came before. Because everything that came before this moment doesn't exist. There is nothing that came before this moment, literally. There's just nothing there. Uh, there's only this, this appearance, this, these, this word, this sound, this movement, this feeling in the body. That's all that's here and that's all that we ever need. Um, so if you, uh, take in a talk like this or a transmission or one-on-one -on -one interaction with a non-dual uh, person, facilitator, teacher, uh, or book even, or watch a video, if you watch it, take it in and engage it from that place, from a place of total freshness, not like, okay, you got to remember this. And does this, is this like what they said before? That's not the part of you that we're talking to, um, just take it in, just let it kill you in a way, let it destroy your ideas, let it destroy your frameworks and be okay with that. Even if it feels scary, even if it causes a, an emotional reaction or a fear reaction, it's okay. Let, let, let that play out, let that, you know, um, express within the body mind and, and recognize it, notice it, but don't fight it and don't go up into your mind. You know, if you can approach, these talks with that kind of openness, I think you're in the best place possible for this. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the guidance as far as <clears throat> how to orient to a conversation like this or a talk like this, especially when it comes to this critical insight I'm talking about of uh, how to break the spell of the conceptual 
identity laden um, ego that wants to take everything in, but it wants to take it in and turn it into something it's familiar with. It wants to take it in and play by its own rules. And it does it, and it does it really, really well, actually. Um, the good news is that's just not the only game in town. There's something else going on right now within you. Even if your mind is hearing this and doing that, which for many people watching this, it will be, um, even if that's happening and you're very aware of it, your mind is arguing with what I'm saying or trying to, you know, saying, oh, okay, let go of the past. I can't let go of the past. There's still thoughts about the past and arguing with yourself. Like all that stuff is going to be happening. But the good news is that's not the only game in town. There's also something else happening. And that's what I'm pointing to again and again and again and again. There's something else in your experience. There's something that's just not that. It's not that hungry mind. It's not that frustrated mind. It's not that mind that really, really, really wants to reinforce and solidify your story about why you can't wake up or why this doesn't make sense or why this teacher's right and that teacher's wrong or whatever it is. That can be happening or apparently happening. Those thoughts can be there and this message can still get through to something deeper, to something more perhaps primary to the truth of you. Uh, that doesn't, it, there is a truth of you that doesn't have to do with a story or a narrative or a time frame or a physical body or a set of circumstances or a set of relationships or a set of principles you've learned. All of that stuff has a value in the relative world, but that's just not what I'm talking about. You can learn about that anywhere else. Here, that's not what we talk about. So I'm pointing to a, something that is primary to that. I'll use the term primary here, especially not beyond because it is primary. So this experience of consciousness that is not bound by a subject and an object, this experience of consciousness that is not, that, that requires no will for it to be known fully, embodied fully, experienced fully in all of its aspects requires no will, no discernment, no judgment to be known, to be experienced, to be, to be actually to captivate you, to captivate you. Um, <clears throat> it's available to anyone, no matter how skeptical you are, how convinced you are that there's no such thing as awakening or you can't wake up or any of that. It's still there. It's still available always, of course. And it's the funniest thing. It's, for some people, it just clicks quickly. For other people, it takes some years. I don't know why. Um, it's just how it is. For me, I guess you could say it took some years, but I don't think I ever had anyone talk this directly to me either. Had I had that, maybe I, it would have happened quicker, but I was curious about it. I was interested in consciousness and Eastern thought and the Tao Te Ching and, you know, Zen. And I had this, I had this sort of fascination with Eastern thought, with the koans, with the stories in Zen, with the, the book, the Tao Te Ching. I bought it and I'd look through it and read it. But it felt really opaque to me. It felt really opaque. I would read it, the lines, and I'd be like, there's got to be something here. Why would people buy the book? Why has this been around 2,500 years? Like, I, so I, some, some instinct told me there was something here, but my logic did not get it at all. It was like everything in there was like contradictory. It was all contradictory logic. It just didn't make sense. But something in me, so, so perhaps just coming in contact with that again and again, it was, it was getting in, you know, it was transmitting but I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. I wouldn't have guessed that. Um, so yeah, I, I had encounters with things like that, books, materials, 
Uh, we didn't really have the internet back then. I didn't have non-duality videos. Again, it may have been a lot more rapid had we had that, but um, looking back, yeah, I guess it did take you know several years for me. Um, <clears throat> also, I remember hearing about, learning about, particularly the person who taught me to meditate, talked about um, unbound consciousness, or he, he would talk about consciousness not bound to an object of thought. And as I meditated, I would have peaceful experiences um, periodically. It wasn't always peaceful, but it was sometimes very peaceful. And I thought during those that I was experiencing uh, what he was talking about. And maybe I was experiencing what he was talking about. Um, but it was still, I would say in retrospect, what I was experiencing was something like um, a, a mind with a mind with a lot less content than I was used to. Um, I, it's something more like the, the subject was still intact, but the experience of objects of thought got very quiet and calm such that I didn't feel like I had to uh, engage thought so much. I felt more, I felt a more um, uh, neutral relationship with thought. And that happened frequently during meditation, like a, a sort of neutral relationship such that probably the subject, the experience of me, the thinker, was itself um, by, by reference was a little less prominent and that felt good. And, and that certainly the mind was calmer. Uh, but until I was 24 years old, until the shift that happened that I talked about many times, um, I didn't realize that the, that dualistic experience was still there. There was still a sense of a thinker. I, the thinker, I didn't realize was kind of the central thought all the time. And it was holding every other thought at a distance. Thoughts, not just being thoughts as such thoughts, being the world as I believed it existed, the thoughts being my life as I thought it existed. Um, so those calming experiences were great, but it wasn't until I found a way to investigate the nature of identity itself and how it was formulated within thought that the shift actually happened. So that's why I uh, encourage people to do this all the time. I encourage people to find some way to really inquire into the nature of thought or the nature of you as the thinker um, or to inquire into the nature of reality itself or inquire into and use the inquiry that's natural to you. Inquire into the question that feels natural to you. It's a little different for everyone, of course, um, but the the intention is valuable. And the, the instinct that there is something set up in consciousness that is binding, that is creating a story that feels solid. The, that story, that narrative, um, it doesn't matter what it says. It can say all kinds of different things. Uh, but it, it feels solid and it feels not deeply real. At the deepest level, you know that there's something not true about it or just not accurate about it. That, touching into that, I don't know, doubt, you could call it, like the, the, the sense of unsatisfactoriness of the mind's world version of the world, tapping into that and then formulating a, a, your own koan, your own question, your own um, pathway of inquiry is truly valuable. And this is kind of where you have to tr start to trust yourself 
You can find references in ancient texts. You can find references in um, traditions that are sort of structured around this, this awakening process, like Zen, for instance, maybe Zochen. You can find these pointers all over in different questions or koans. But, but this part where you really start to go on your own instinct, this is where it requires you now to, to um, trust yourself, trust that you actually have the capacity to see truth as it is, not as you've learned to see it, not as you've learned to construct it with thought. Um, and this is a, another barrier I, I think I see in people. I think a lot of times people have not just doubt, but self-doubt and the self-doubt um, tends to externalize their attention, almost like, well, it works for you, but not me, or like looking for the right teacher. It's gotta be the right teacher, the right transmission. Um, you know, if, if only that person could, I could work one-on-one -on -one with them, I know that would work, or, or, but they're not available. Or, you know, we tend to externalize the impetus for awakening to some degree. Again, all of these things can be valuable, of course. Uh, finding some a teacher you really resonate with, teacher, you know, guide, spiritual friend, whatever you want to call it, but somebody who either works one-on-one -on -one or makes videos about what I'm talking about. Um, finding someone that you resonates with you that, that seems to transmit to you or the right book or the right, you know, whatever, facilitator of any kind, there is value to that. But you can't put the impetus to shift identity on them. It just won't work. You'll hit a wall with that. At some point, you have to go on pure instinct, which is really cool. I mean, it's really such a big deal when you do that. It's such a big deal. And for some people, uh, and they've told me this, all they needed to hear was you can do that. It's okay. It, you, they've known it was there. Their instinct was already there. The instinct to go here <laughs> was already there. But they just had the cues they had gotten from the world and from people they had been in contact with were don't go there or or maybe it's not don't go there it's more like go here go here go here go over there you know all the ways to try to be a good person right that are some of them are overt they're like you know go to school become smart do have good relationships make money some of them are subtextual you know like seek validation constantly try to impress people be competitive like these things we don't say we're doing but we're doing right though all of those things we take in and we believe that's what we're supposed to do and yet there's this thing right here, you know, it's, it's so close. It's like no one points to it or very few people point to it. But for some, they, they've just always known it was there. It's like, oh, that's where I'm supposed to go. I can go there. And that's all I'm really saying at this point is, yes, not only can you go there, um, that's where you want to go. And it, it's just there for you, you know. So at some point, the question, the koan, the inquiry, the process, the, even the one-pointed approach, it turns into something that just feels like an instinctual, um, I don't know, almost like a black hole. It's just pulling you in, you know, it's just like go in there. Uh, <clears throat> and at this point, you're not thinking mechanistically about consciousness. Is this bound consciousness or unbound consciousness? It's not like that. It's just that the the... The energetics of you, I could say the mind, but I'd rather just say the energetics, they get so 
focused. They get so um, undifferentiated here that a reset can happen. And the reset happens when you just let go, however that happens. Your instinct often at this point will tell you it is time to let go and it's okay to let go. Um, and when the reset happens, suddenly the experience of consciousness unbound by thoughts as very obviously primary to any thought, and there can still be thoughts, of course, but the primary experience of consciousness unbound where there is no subject and object, there isn't a central me, there's just consciousness. Um, it may not feel like the term consciousness, it may just feel like being, like, or everythingness. Um, it may feel like unity, like an experience of unity. This gets interpreted a lot of different ways. Some people will say, all of a sudden I was everything, I was everyone. The experience of identity just being infinite. Um, and maybe portraying it that way as a sort of infinite experience of being or infinite experience of identity um, is a little better at portraying the magnitude of the shift than just saying you realize unbound consciousness. But I talk kind of mechanistically and that's what I think it is. Um, it's a big deal. For me, I remember a flash moment where it was like, I actually remembered it. I remembered the experience of unbound consciousness, probably maybe before I formulated an identity at all, but I remembered the experience of it very, very clearly. And I was like, oh, how have I overlooked this for so long? And it was just there. It was so simple and sweet. And all the problems I had dreamed up over the years were suddenly seen to be nothing but um, kind of like, like, a, like a mirage with mirrors of consciousness. They were like a mirage, like, if you look at it this way, then that makes that a problem. But if you adjust it this way, now the problem's over here. But it's something in the mirage of that dualistic aspect of consciousness that wasn't primary. I'm not even gonna make a statement about the truth or falsity of identity as, as such. I'm just gonna say, if you're taking your identity from a, from a dualistic experience in consciousness, and all of a sudden identity is non-dualistic in consciousness, it's this pure experience of being, you're not gonna find problems like that. You, I mean, you can find momentary problems or challenges, I suppose, in the relative world, but the experience of being is unaffected by it. The experience of you is unaffected by it now in the way it was before. Um, it's just primary to all experience. And that's a big relief, huge relief. Um, and as I've said before, some people will, will, will actually experience this as what is called the I am sense, the I am sense, not an I am thought, but not a thought about I am this or I am that. Just the sense of I am, meaning the sense of pure being is, feels like I. Um, and it, it, it may and it may not feel like that. It doesn't actually matter either way. Um, but beyond this, once we have access to this, I do find it valuable to spend some time sort of resting in that. In fact, when someone has a, an awakening, often my initial right away recommendation or guidance if they ask is just sit in it, steep yourself in what's been realized. It's, and usually that makes total sense to them because it's just so, it's so revolutionary, but so simple, but so immediately available all the time, no matter what. Like it feels so good to be off the hook from having to constantly solve the problem of you and your life. <laughs> you realize that that's just a fool's game. It was just a bunch of thoughts. 
you don't have to do it anymore. And so to, to just rest in that feels so good and so natural that often that, that will um, kind of carry them for some time, for sometimes months um, without a practice, because there is a value to, to this non-practice aspect. The, the realization that you haven't had to do anything to be okay, the realization you haven't had to do anything to discover um, because the, the, the doing and the discovering and the becoming are all very small fragments of the truth. <laughs> the truth is now you, or, or the truth is just here. It's imminent, it's obvious. So that's a very nice place to rest and just let that insight sort of, I don't know, settle in a little bit. Um, there's a non-doing time for that. Um, it's very nice. Sitting, meditating, sitting in quietude, solitude, feels very natural there, feels very good. And actually interacting with people, you know, will also feel very fluid too. Um, everyone's a little different. Some people I find have a little bit of an, more of an attachment to that and they'll tend to over-engage with people in those situations and that can be kind of stressful to the psyche actually uh, because you're so fluid uh, and it feels so easy to just get engaged in anything but the karmic, for lack of a better way of saying it, the karmic threads are still there. For sure. The karmic energies are there and you're picking them up from people and you're absorbing them without quite realizing it. And that can kind of lead to a sort of crash at some point where it's like so intense, so much shadow to, to work through. So it's very valuable beyond this, this shift uh, for quite some time to really spend some time in solitude, uh, at least relative solitude with yourself sitting quietly in peace, sitting with that oceanic experience of beingness, being. Dzogchen has a term knowingness, which is beautiful. It's knowingness. It's not knowing one thing as an object of knowledge. It's not being a knower. It's the knowingness, which I think is pretty accurate because it's the, the knowingness aspect of consciousness is what we've taken to be the world, what we've taken to be the the timeline, what we've taken to be ourself, what we've taken to be our partner, what we've taken to be the problems, what we've taken to be our boss and work, all of that is made out of this knowingness. And now it's just knowingness. The ability to, to, to be aware of without anything you have to be aware of. That is the insight. That's a beautiful insight. Um, sometimes I wonder if it's best just to point to this um, it's tricky because I make these videos for the public and so anyone watches them and people at different stages kind of watch, but, um, but I think it, when this insight hasn't dawned yet, I'm not sure reading a bunch of esoteric stuff about non-duality and no self is helpful. It's, I don't really don't think it is, honestly. Um, I don't believe in esoteric information either or hiding something, but, uh, but this, this insight is so important and, um, if it's overlooked, I, I find it just gets things out of balance. I have seen people kind of get some tastes of non-dual, like deeper non-dual realization taste-wise through doctrine and things, but there's something that just feels really stuck there. And then somehow this will, this will dawn, this realization will dawn. And it's like, oh my God, how did I overlook that? You know? Um, so uh, also I, I've, find that the, the 
experience of unbound consciousness, the experience of the unity of consciousness. Um, this is a bit of an aside. I, I was going to kind of go into... It's, it's, it's helpful here also not to make conclusions about this because that leads to a, another kind of fixation where we can start to sort of talk about the world as consciousness, like the world is made out of consciousness, like the rock over there is made out of consciousness, such that if I die, that rock disappears, right? That's a bit skewed experience. Um, but uh, so, so it's, I think it's helpful not to make conclusions, rather just rest in the knowingness of it, rest in the, the realization that has been um, given by grace, you know, at least that's how it felt to me, uh, as such, without making conclusions about it, drawing conclusions about you or what that means to you or spirituality or the world, um, because there are deeper insights, but resting with that as such, um, the realization being self-validating, being such a such an amazing thing, like, you know, to just steep yourself in that is very valuable. Um, and then what I wanted to say is further insights, deeper insights, like uh, non-dual insights, insights about the the nature of of the physical, what we feel like and observe as what we call the physical world, um, and even the nature of identity itself. Those those deeper insights all really do come through the lens of that initial insight itself. It's not they're not somewhere else. Um, someone uh, wrote uh, in there's a there's a really nice. Uh, description in the, the Awakening to Reality blog you can find online, uh, stages of realization and the um, initial insight of I am, the I am sense, the, this writer um, called, called himself thusness at the time, uh, the initial insight of I am, uh, he said, it seems so opposed to the Buddhist doctrine of no self because it, it was so self-evident. I am sense was so self-evident, so obvious. But as he described, in, as, the, as it kind of deepened um, through the I am sense, the lens of it, it started to look like an eyeless eye. It started to look like I without an eye somehow. It was very paradoxical, of course, but that, that was the natural progression. And it is, it is rather like that. This is why I say the, the lens of further insights and, and deepening realization is through that initial insight. And that's why another reason why it's critical and should not be overlooked. There are many ways to approach that, of course. Um, we've talked about some of them on this retreat. I talk about them all the time. There's koans, there's investigating the nature of thought in real time. But with any of these approaches, it's the key, the key is doing it in real time. The key is just slowing down, being precise about what you're actually experiencing and go there, right? So for instance, one approach could be or is to just observe one thought. So just notice any thought in the immediate right now. If there doesn't appear to be a thought in the moment, just wait for the thought. Just wait for a thought and just put your attention there. The mere act of doing this, <clears throat> the turning attention inward that way, the curiosity that comes with it is 
rather valuable. And what happens beyond that may be something you figure out yourself. You, you can sort of sort out how you want to move after you start to do this. But I can also offer some suggestions on how this could play out. <clears throat> um, you may notice initially as you do this, if you do it repeatedly, like say a thought comes or you find yourself lost in thought and you, you start again. Okay, well, let me just pay attention to the next thought that's going to arise. And then you just become oriented to whatever is appearing in consciousness. Just wait, you know? If you do that repeatedly in this way, you might find that the gap actually gets longer. The gap between asking the question and even noticing any kind of thought formulating at all. So that's one thing that's valuable. Um, another that is valuable is when we're, when we're so mind identified that we don't even know we have thoughts. I think Sam Harris said, uh, having an ego is what it feels like to have thoughts without knowing you have thoughts. And I've had this conversation with people a few times. It's very interesting who think they have no thoughts. And then I talk to them for a while and then they realize they are having thoughts. It's just that they're so identified with them. They don't realize their thoughts, which is fascinating. Actually the whole other story, but that's very fascinating. Um, but the other thing this does is it allows you to start to see thoughts as thoughts. You may see some thoughts as thoughts and other thoughts you're so identified with. You actually think it's the world you're looking at. Or it's the way, just the way it, the way it is, whatever that means. So this allows you to get some distance there, um, perceptual distance, such that you can recognize, oh, that's a that's a thought. Wow, huh? That's a thought. Um, so that's another valuable uh, aspect to doing this. You may also find, as you start to turn attention inward this way, that the mind might just calm down enough and, and your perception, your quality of perception changes enough in that moment that it feels a little extraordinary, meaning not quite the way consciousness normally feels. And that in and of itself can be really interesting such that you can, it's almost like you find a pathway and then you just intuitively know how to move through that without thinking, right? If you stay in that watching state in a way, you stay in that state of like just a waiting for the next thought to arise um, without thinking about it. Again, without thinking about I'm, I'm waiting for the next thought to arise. That's not what I mean. I mean literally just noticing for anything to move, anything to stir within consciousness. Then the noticing itself does this strange thing where instead of being like a, a subject which is constantly reinforced by the object of thought, it starts to just soften and grow in a way. So it becomes more nebulous, actually. The subject itself, the thinker, becomes more nebulous. Um, now, I'm starting to talk mechanistically, and I, I do want people to like explore it in their own way. But what I find is that it's actually a very strange mechanism. The subject in thought, the sense of I, the thinker, um, being actually something you'll never find, and yet also being part of the realization to, to suddenly realize you've been taking yourself to be something within thought this whole time is actually backward extrapolated from the objects of thought. So when you orient yourself such that the objects of thought slow down or stop, um, it's almost like this back here, the subject stops getting reemphasized and it becomes kind of nebulous. And then you might instinctually just know how to uh, I don't know how else to say it, but explore this. Um, again, you're not exploring it cognitively or 
by thought. You're not taking notes, but there's some instinctual way to move through and move with and as consciousness that may feel like you're not even doing it. It may feel much more like a nat like like just slipping into a bathtub or something. You don't control how the water moves around your body, something like that. Um, so it can be valuable to do that. The curiosity and the and where your attention actually is and how your attention is being utilized within consciousness, those are kind of a magic formula here. They they just coalesce in a certain way. Um, And I think if you try it again and again, you might become more and more curious about what's actually happening. What actually is a thought? What is a thought? Yeah? Like you could imagine your bedroom, right? Something you're very familiar with. Now, if you have aphantasia, you can't picture your bedroom, but you could describe it to yourself. Um, but what is the nature of that bedroom actually? Is it the thought? Is it the collection of thoughts? Is it the, is it the visual image in the mind? Or is it someplace in the world? Which one feels more real? Which one do we always take to be the truth? So we're taking this nebulous experience to be the truth, and yet, can we actually find it? Can you actually find it? Can you find a thought? Look and see, like move your attention there and see what is your attention, what is thought? Is your attention other than this sort of fluctuation within thought? So any of these, queries or questions or um, curiosity points can be very valuable to you. All I suggest is do it non-conceptually. Find your way into the non-conceptual within consciousness. Experience of consciousness in a non-conceptual, non-discerning or judging way. And everyone has access to it. And it, it often just feels like a memory, like, oh my God, I, I remember this. And then just... might get really quiet. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, I think yesterday at some point, be, um, be aware that often the thought that'll catch you and get you to re-identify is a doubt thought, right? So you might do this for a minute and it starts to feel a little something interesting going on and then you might, oh, well, yeah, but I can't sustain this, right? I won't be able to sustain this. Well, how do you know that? If you believe the thought, sure, because you're going to believe the next thought and the next thought and the next thought. But if you recognize, oh, I can't sustain this is one more thought. What's the next thought then? Bring it on. Or you can even sort of freeze frame your mind on that one thought. I can't sustain this. Just keep that thought right at the center of your attention. See how long you can actually keep it there without thinking further about it, without negating it or affirming it. Just that one thought like as if you froze the movie screen on one frame, the movie, you just like turn the projector off, like turn the wheel of the projector off and it's just one frame on the screen. Just stare at that frame and see what happens. Without the dynamic of will within consciousness, what's gonna happen to that one frame? Just see. Can you think about a thought without, without will moving consciousness? Who's moving the projector of consciousness? Who's doing that? <laughs> You're doing that. So stop, see what happens. 
So there's a lot of ways to explore within consciousness once you really start to turn attention back around, once you start to become curious and interested in the mechanism of itself. And you realize the, the, the crux of all of your problems are this. Everything you've wanted, everything you've sought, everything you've failed to acquire in life, all of that stuff, the roots of all of that are right here where I'm pointing. I pro I, that I promise you. It may not seem like it at first, but it, the more you, the more you touch into this, the more you steep in inward in this way, the more you're going to realize all the stuff you think's been happening on the outside wasn't. It's all interpretation, and the interpretation's what's making you feel agitated, frustrated, reactive, on and on and on. <clears throat> So yeah, make an exploration of consciousness. And the way you learn to do it, the way you f uh, find your way through this will be slightly different than anyone else has done it in history, probably. There'll be similarities, but um, you also can and will find your own way in. So if this resonates, if this sounds like where you want to go, then go there. You have the right. You have the opportunity. You have this conscious moment you know, why not?